Hello. Choose Trust is our regular podcast looking at how to build high trust relationships in business and the value that brings to everyone involved. I'm Stuart Meister, and together with my co-presenter Kevin Vaughan-Smith, we're writing a book for Economist Books with the same name, Choose Trust. So, we thought we'd meet and interview leaders who put some of these principles into practice and hear their real-world experiences of doing so and the value that brought. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please subscribe and, of course, please do share it. and welcome to this our latest in a series of podcasts on choose trust um, my name is kevin kevin vaughan smith i'm one of the joint managing directors at mutual value and i'm joined today by stuart meister one of the joint managing directors of mutual value so that gives us a full set um, look we're delighted today to be, uh, welcome uh, vicky price as our guest on this pod- podcast uh, vicky was born in Greece, but moved to the UK to study economics at the LSE, and then enjoyed a stellar career in commerce and government, including roles as chief economist for Williams and Glynn, corporate economist for Exxon Europe, chief economist and partner for 11 years for KPMG, chief economic advisor to the Department of Trade and Industry. She's now on the advisory board of the official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum, and she's the founder of Good Corporation. But she also, I don't know where she finds the time, but she undertakes significant charitable work that relates to her own prison experience. Uh, She works with Working Chance, a charity that helps women ex-offenders find jobs, and she has a role as a trustee of women in prison. So, Vicky, welcome, and thank you for offering your time. Thank you. Uh, Perhaps the two areas we might direct the conversation around trust are at the macro level. You're obviously involved in running large organisations and advising them and helping run government and indeed the economy. And at the micro level, thinking about the individuals um, that you're working with through charity, we're creating trust and maintaining it with potential employers. So, Stuart, over to you. Thank you. I'd like to kick off, Vicky, if, if we can. At that macro level, I think it's really interesting, given some of the roles you've had, about the the the, the behaviours that leaders have shown that have either created or destroyed trust in difficult situations, because that's when it really, really counts. And the two situations I'm particularly thinking of you to reflect on are the Greek debt crisis after the after the 2007-8 uh, crash when there was a real issue in Greece, which I'm sure you can explain in more detail than I will try to do, uh, but there was a crisis of confidence in the Greek leadership and economy. And, of, and what happened more recently in the UK when we had that, uh, the Liz Truss interregnum, if we can call it that, when the markets, of course, took flight because they got scared by the leadership here. I'd like you to talk about the behaviours of leaders that create destruction of trust or destroy trust in that sort of context those are very interesting examples i have to say and yes you're right to suggest that i can say a little bit about greece uh, i've written a book called greek economics 
which is covering the period of the Eurozone crisis. And uh, there is no doubt that uh, quite a lot of the data that should have been available in terms of what was happening with the Greek economy just wasn't available, at least hadn't been picked up. Um, certainly not by Eurostat, which is supposed to be uh, the, the body for Europe, which is collecting all that information. Somehow or other, uh, the Greek debt to GDP ratio wasn't uh, being brought to the attention of anybody particularly. And uh, after the Olympics, which uh, the, the previous decade, which the Greeks had run very, very um, successfully, but had to borrow a lot in order to uh, put the Olympics on uh, in 2004, um, what we saw from then on is that all the borrowing that was done over that period was somehow or other not very visible to anybody really and, and successive governments that had been in place uh, during that period didn't really highlight it particularly. What happened when some of that became clear, particularly after the financial crisis, is that a lot of blame was being put to the statisticians in Greece, for example, of not highlighting things sufficiently. And there was a bit of a sort of witch hunt, but also trust in the government um, was eroded. So you're quite right uh, about this, but it wasn't the only country, Greece, where uh, issues of debt had been significant and a lot of that was exposed when the banking crisis hit. Um, of course, there had to be a huge amount of intervention to support the economies. But it was also the case that um, trust, if you like, in the way in which the European system worked was eroded. And for the Greeks in a very big way, because suddenly, uh, whereas everyone had expected that certainly having joined the euro and having a European Central Bank, there would be support for countries and there would be also some mutual taking on of responsibility, if you like, and support for countries that run into difficulties as a result of the financial crisis and had to borrow much more as a result, uh, Greece was left to itself. And there was a, a major sort of um, point when it really turned things very negative. You talked about what happens to the markets. Uh, Greece was basically left to itself to borrow from the capital markets, which it couldn't do because the markets got very worried when they heard and realized that uh, after a pronouncement by the French and uh, the uh, German leaders, it was Sarkozy and Merkel at the time, um, that every country would have to fend for themselves uh, and borrow from the capital markets as need be. Well, the capital markets went on strike. Greece was unable to borrow and had to be bailed out. And the result of that, of course, was uh, that Greece, over a period of time, helped by whatever the IMF thought was right in terms of trying to restructure the economy because they were involved in part of that bailout process, uh, saw its GDP decline by something like 27, 28% over a period of years, which is huge if you compare this with what's going on uh, right now or rather what we saw with COVID. So it's uh, it was hugely greater and it eradicated an entire middle class in Greece. So. You would imagine, therefore, that trust um, with Europe and trust with the euro would be eroded as well. And yes, a lot of concern about what other European countries did, why they didn't come to help. They later did, of course, when Italy and Spain and others found it difficult to borrow in the capital markets. Uh, we saw the European Central Bank step in and say, we're going to do everything we can to uh, save the euro and uh, soon after quantitative easing was introduced in well a few years later in in Europe as well and a lot of those countries were 
able to start borrowing again at much lower rates simply because the European Central Bank said they would come in and help. They didn't do that at the time of the Greek crisis, which was slightly earlier on. Um, and uh, the Greeks would have been probably justified in saying we don't want to be part of the euro. But the interesting thing is that there was more trust in the euro than they would trust in some of the uh, of the politicians who were saying we should be leaving the euro. And uh, the Greeks really you know, voted, if you like, almost with their feet to stay in uh, and continue to depend financially and fiscally on, on Europe overall. So they're still in the euro. They haven't left. And it's an interesting change of, of uh, perception, really, that um, perhaps despite his faults, being part of a region that maybe can come in and help you if necessary, but now reformed uh, to such an extent that institutions have changed and we wouldn't be seeing anything like the repetition of the crisis we saw before. They would be helping a lot more than they did at that time. Uh, but the Greeks kept the faith, kept the trust. Can I come, you know, can I come, in, on, can I come in on this? Just because before we move to this trust era, yeah. I'm very, we're very interested in the behaviours here. So you, what you've set out there is that there was there was a loss of trust in Greece, but there was equally a loss of trust by gr many Greeks into the European institutions for the reasons you've just set out. So there was a breakdown in mutual trust and the behaviours on both sides led to that. What I'm interested in is if you can point to the actual behaviours of the leadership on both sides that contributed to that, or and allied to that, is there anything that, leaving aside the objective facts on the ground, there was a big debt that did exist, was there anything, were there any behaviours that people could have done differently that would have averted the crisis on both sides of that equation? Yes, I think the Greeks, um, early on it was George Papandreou as leader, the Greeks could have been tougher, they were reasonably tough, but they they didn't have the sort of alliances, if you like, um, to be able to withstand some of the pressure from other countries in Europe and from the IMF. And we could have been bolder in terms of uh, actually seriously threatening to leave uh, the euro if more help wasn't wasn't given. Um, and some of the bailouts that happened later may not uh, have been necessary. There could have been a lot of restructuring of the debt. Uh, there could have been better diplomacy. Uh, what was believed to be the case, particularly when uh, the very famous now Yanis Varoufakis was um, finance minister around 2015, uh, there could have been considerably better um, sort of diplomacy employed by him. Um, I, I do think he had the right ideas, but uh, they, they weren't executed in a way that gave us a solution for Greece's problems. So, so yes, I think uh, there was very little trust between the, the Greek politicians and the Eurogroup that was more or less sort of making sort of the, the decision or taking the decisions that were important at the time. And that's pretty bad news. If you are in a group when that trust has evaporated uh, between the players in that group, then uh, you know so, something's going to go badly wrong for one bit of that group and unfortunately that bit was Greece because they were weaker and couldn't really command uh, enough support so um, yes a lot of mistakes were made probably uh, and the results could have been better uh, what is happening now of course is that the institutions changed the European Central Bank has now become a lender of last resort they're buying Greek bonds have been buying Greek bonds the whole stability and growth pact has been suspended 
uh, because of issues that we've seen with COVID and the energy crisis. But uh, in truth, uh, in my view, if only we had COVID and, and the energy crisis before we had the financial crisis, things might have been different for Greece because right now the thinking has changed very significantly. Unfortunately, Greece was very unlucky at the time. But yes, trust played a big, big role in uh, the situation, uh, or rather the way the situation uh, was or was not resolved. And if there had been better trust and understanding between the players, things could have been different. So what we see as, as part of our model for, for creating trust is it has to start with the shared vision or shared clarity about what we're trying to achieve and what the outcomes are. And, and I think what you're describing is, is that the two parties were simply not on the same same uh, in the same place in terms of what they believed was the was the outcome they could achieve is that fair yes but of course it was also a lack of understanding of um, the complexities of being members of a single currency um, when crisis hits because individual countries can't respond by themselves they can't change their exchange rate uh, in order to at least uh, you know continue continue to be competitive uh, they can't change their interest rates to adjust to being particularly badly hit, for example, uh, by comparison to others, because there are differences in the countries, huge differences in GDP per head, huge differences in the structures of the economy. A lot of that was just not taken into account when the euro was created, and that's why the institutions were lagging behind. And at least the crisis make them made them be built in a way which would suggest to me that right now, if there is an extra crisis, there would be extra help. And we've seen that happened with COVID, we've seen that happen with uh, the problems from the war in Ukraine. But it's taken a lot of pain to get to this point. So that that pain, though, has led to a shared view about the way that the, the, the potential for the organisation, for the, for the uh, community to work together. So that's interesting. Stuart, did you, you also want to ask about Liz Truss and her experience? On I do, but, before, but I just want to also flag up something. I think this really illustrates, Vicky, that, that we see in in business as much as in national politics and indeed in, in personal relationships, which is this. Well, I call this the, the, the contrast between the wedding and the marriage. So in other words, when people are at the wedding, everything's fantastic, everyone's happy. And it's a bit like when the Euro was formed or when all of these institutions, the, the financial infrastructure you're describing was created, everyone was happy. We glossed over a few problems. We glossed over one or two issues because we're all happily unifying our financial situation. Then the marriage happens and you're five years in and the kids are crying at three in the morning and it's not so glossy. And, and what many people don't address at the beginning is what happens when things go wrong? How are we going to behave? What are we going to do? How? And I wonder whether you want to reflect on that in this situation, whether people spent enough time thinking, what, how are we going to behave? How are we going to maintain trust between us when things go wrong? Because they will do. Absolutely. I think the Europeans thought that they had the systems there to build that trust because um, or rather to ensure that that trust was built and retained by having uh, extra um, rules that countries had to follow for this system to work. So you could argue that it was premature um, and it was done without thinking of the consequences. But any economist who would be looking at what those impacts were. In fact, when I was at KPMG, we had developed something called Euro services and we worked for this big, and I was responsible for that, we worked for these big firms that were going to adjust to the euro as it was coming up before the, the, the notes and coins were introduced in 2002. 
and we were taking them through the scenario and saying, right, let's say there is a crisis, maybe an oil crisis. We couldn't think, we didn't think at the time it could be a financial crisis or anything like that. Uh, you know, and suddenly, you know, Greece finds itself in real difficulty and, uh, you know, hasn't got, his economy slows down, it can't change its interest rates, can't change monetary policy. It's going to have to just reduce wages to keep uh, itself uh, relatively competitive. What is that going to do to their ability to pay for medicines? Uh, and obviously, you know, if you're talking to a pharmaceutical company, what they're looking ahead is the possibility in a crisis of just not getting paid, of that the entire project in Europe, uh, in Southern Europe, you know, collapsing. So it was quite obvious that there wasn't uh, the ability to think ahead about what would happen if there's a crisis. As I said, the institutions were not ready, but everyone went in trusting each other. And the interesting thing is that this trust evaporated. And, and you saw that spread among loads of countries. Um, it wasn't just Greece. The, the thing I, just to continue, and I'm sure we should get on to Liz Trust, but yeah. um, the thing that strikes us is trust, if one really trusts a personal friend or partner, whatever, you can admit to making a mistake. And that's one of the things that in strong trusting relationships, we can do all the time. But there's a real hesitation in leading organizations, in politicians, to be vulnerable by saying, you know what, we maybe we didn't foresee all these issues. Maybe we didn't have a perfect plan. Maybe we even made a mistake. And I, I wonder how you've seen that operating at all, or whether you would agree with that uh, as being a difficulty for people. Can I just build on that? Because I want to build on that. I want Kevin, just, just to build on what Kevin said there, which is the other thing that is is an, is related to that is is you've said they thought they'd sorted it because they had in place various structures and rules and so on and again you can compare this to every situation that you see in business or indeed in personal relationships where you might have what you think is a watertight contract you might have rule but but actually what where things go wrong is when you stuff you just couldn't have anticipated and then it's the behaviours, how you agree to work together that makes a difference, that builds or destroys trust, not the contract, the rules. The, and yeah, so do you, your, your thoughts on those? those yeah. two. I, I agree um, entirely. The only problem about the, the European issue is that you could have anticipated it. Uh, but people were so keen and countries were so keen to get together and to be accepted in the club. Uh, that some blind eyes were, or whatever it is, people turned a blind eye, if you like, or went in with their eyes closed, yeah. um, uh, or accepted others simply because it, it was good for Europe to have those countries in. Um, and uh, that was perhaps a mistake. So one should have thought about those issues. You mentioned before marriage and children. One knows that children are going to scream. One isn't always prepared about that, but one can see what the outcome is, which is that eventually they grow and they are okay, you know, despite the terrible time you may have. Uh, the euro was new, it hadn't been tested, but you could do, you know, just on the back of an envelope, a little simulation of the type that I told you. You know, if that happens, that crisis happen all the time in the economy. Uh, and there are world crises every 10 years. Well, recently, of course, it's been slightly more frequently than that. Um, so you should be able to, to know what the implications of that would be. 
and therefore adjust accordingly. But there hadn't been enough time, and sometimes, just like the founders of of the European uh, Union, which is now is, which you know, the European Common um, uh, Market, as was, um, they thought that in fact you get to your perfect solution, but through a series of crises. And eventually you get there. During that period, of course, trust could be eroded many times. So it just takes you longer mm. to get to that point. And, and that's the problem. So in business or in private matters, you don't have that much time to live through those crises and get things to get better. Because so, you know, companies could go bust um, because you just haven't got enough time to learn and, and adapt after a crisis. And also, of course, with personal relations, too. Well, let's move to Liz Trust because I think I, I, not just a, a, looking at what Liz Trust and Quasi Quantum did in the UK, but what what I think is very interesting is to consider, and this is this works in in business too. When you're about to make a major announcement, which is going to be in some way disruptive or radical or transformative or arguably, arguably unpopular, depends on you know, and many people have to do that. Is there any way? in a situation like that they could have made the same moves made the same decisions made the same announcements but done so in a way that built trust in them and the government and the uk economy such that the markets didn't take fright yes it could have been done differently i mean of course everyone is talking about uh, involving or not having involved the office for budget responsibility so there was no real analysis and if there'd been an analysis that said this is what we need to do that's how much it's going to cost uh this is what it will mean for the economy and that was presented at the same time um and that's how much we need to borrow over a period of time uh and perhaps you know at some point in the future you know fiscal rules may be eroded but we're going to be possibly you know, increasing taxes or doing something different in some bit of the economy to make up for some of what we're giving away now to get the economy moving again. So we have a plan. Um, the, the markets might have been considerably happier than that. And, and the interesting thing is that a lot has been said about the, the mini budget and the impact it has had, but it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone because Liz Truss had announced all those plans practically during her election campaign uh, to be prime minister. And it was obvious that she, she was talking about cutting taxes. taxes. It wasn't a new, a new idea. Uh, and also she announced on the first day, the first announcement she made in parliament, which was actually on the same day as the queen's death was announced, that she was going to give support finally on the electricity front for the cost to households and businesses, something which you know, the previous government hadn't done and which had left loads and loads of people in suspense. And suddenly the, the whole mood had lifted. Even the Bank of England was talking about increasing interest rates a lot less sharply. And in fact, the day before the mini budget, they must have known what was happening. They announced that they were only going to raise interest rates by 0.25% and that they were going to start uh, selling all those bonds they had accumulated in the balance sheet during QE. And they were going to sell about 70 billion or 60 billion of those in this financial year that just finished. So that was September. And they were going to start almost immediately. So they were going to flood the market with extra uh, bonds that the market will have to absorb. And that, of course, would come in addition to whatever List Trust or Quadeng were going to say the following day uh, in the mini budget. So 
it was really no great surprise. I think it just wasn't sold the right way. I don't think there was anything intrinsically wrong with with what they had intended, but there was no long-term plan. So if you want to take the markets with you, if you want to take even the Bank of England and others with you, uh, you've got to at least present some analysis of your strategy. So it goes back to what we're discussing about the euro. Is there a plan if there's a crisis? If there is no plan, if there's a crisis, then the markets, the moment there is one, or even the soupçon of one, uh, will just stop lending to you. And this is precisely what happened. So that goes back to the point I was making earlier, is that there was no clarity for people, no buy-in, no commitment to the to the vision of what, what we're doing and why we're doing it, and that there is a vision. Uh, it just it it just felt like uncontrolled and and knee jerk. But your point is, it actually was well flagged, and that was what she was uh, elected for, as it were. So exactly, and I was I'm still surprised about the reaction uh, of the markets, uh, and also the fact that obviously, I mean, the Bank of England when it decided whatever he was doing the day before, I mean, the day before the mini budget, no, but the, must um, have known it was going to happen. Well, they may have known, but, but they disagreed with it. I mean, you, you, you can know something's going to happen and say, if you do this, it's fundamentally wrong and I'm not sticking around, which is what happened. But the, but the, 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 the common criticism, which I think has wider implications, very keen to gain wider lessons from this for others running businesses or working individually in their, in their personal lives, is that what the common criticism is they didn't have a discussion. They didn't build a support for the uh, for the decisions before they made them, they simply it was a command and control to a style of leadership, if you like, which is I'm the prime minister, I'm going to say this, and you can all you lot can all just stick it. Uh, and the, the, I don't know whether you share the view that had they engage, spent some time engaging in consensus building behind what they're doing, maybe even compromised in certain areas, the thrust of what they were trying to do could have been successful. Yes, I agree with that. Um, but the interesting thing is that everything that they had done, it wasn't so much the policies, everything that they had done was against getting that compromise, so or, or that consensus, rather. So, so for example, the first thing that Kwarteng did when he became Chancellor, on day one, I think, is fire the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury. And I wrote a blog straight away saying that means lower growth in the economy and crisis ahead, practically. Mm. Um, because if you... You sort of disenfranchise a whole part of the of of uh, the sort of panoply you need in order to get your policies to work properly. That's the way to do it. Um, you know, the treasury is very, very important, vitally important for getting what you want to see done happen. So, um, th this is tremendously interesting but I don't want to lose the opportunity to go down now to the micro level if we could you're you're working with women through charity who are ex-offenders who there are perceptions about ex-offenders uh, out there and you're trying to help these these uh, people find important roles for them and for society and work can you talk a bit about trust in that context Vicky and and, and where the issues may lay yeah, so the first thing to say, of course, is that uh, I have written quite a lot about uh, women more generally and the problems that uh, they have in terms of being properly accepted for the right types of jobs, the right skills and in society more generally. So uh, the gender pay gap and how it is important to deal with it if we are to get better results in terms of the economy overall and better results in terms of productivity. So we're losing a huge talent. And one of those things 
relates to what happens for people generally who are in prison who have uh, at some point acquired a, 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 a record, a criminal record, which very often is an impediment to get them getting any jobs. So uh, the, the charity of which I'm patron called Working Chance uh, helps um, women ex-offenders get quality jobs but of course a lot of the time they need indeed to get the trust or gain the trust of future employers and there is definitely a sort of negative perception of anyone who's who's uh, headed conviction been in prison or otherwise um, in terms of getting any job offers uh, and what this charity tries to do is improve the understanding of future employers about what these people can contribute, but also give a lot more confidence, if you like, to um, offenders who are still in prison, possibly when they make uh, sort of applications for jobs and then interviews, uh, or come out on day release, or have left and are getting some support to be able to get those jobs. So a lot of training needs to be done to encourage them to even you know, do an application and, and even, you know, get on the phone or have a sort of Zoom interview or whatever it is that uh, happens these days. Uh, and the benefits to companies that employ them are quite significant because those who bother to do all this and go through this process uh, tend to be very reliable in terms of what they offer to a firm. So uh, all the surveys suggest that um, there is a lot of satisfaction with how they perform. And of course, it equips lots and lots of people in society to contribute to the economy anyway, and of course, for themselves. So we know that employment and reoffending are very directly linked. So if you are, are employed when you come out of a prison or from a period of whatever it is that the penalty has been, um, you're much less likely to reoffend. And reoffending, of course, causes uh, you know huge damage and costs um, billions to the economy every year and of course you know crime costs hundreds of billions to the economy every year so so there is a good economic reason for it uh but the trust in the system and how it works and how you can get people to really contribute through this process through the way in which probation officers and then of course those uh, organizations that try and find jobs for ex-offenders uh, work is is really important and the relationship that they can develop with businesses is also crucial of course here we are now having, of course, a, a staff shortage issue when when loads of um, workers decide you know, no longer to be part of the labor force. Uh, those people who have had, and there are loads and loads of them because one in six people in the UK has a, has a, a criminal conviction, um, can certainly help um, ease some of those pressures as well. So economically, it makes huge amount of sense. You just need to get the framework to change. However, recent surveys still suggest that about two thirds of firms would not employ an ex-offender if they realize that the, they have a criminal record. Wow. Can I share a, a personal experience? I'm involved with another charity that does similar work called Project Remake, which you may be aware of, which, which um, and I was at their graduation mm -hmm. ceremony. For, are you aware of it? Mm, yes, um, well done, yes. Uh, yeah, and I was at the graduation ceremony recently for those that have been through the program and have now got either jobs or are pitching to start businesses and for funding for businesses which is fantastic and I chatted to a guy who tall lovely Asian guy very warm very softly spoken you know you think actually he was an accountant or a lawyer 
and I said, and I said to him, uh, you know, just tell me your story. What's your story? He said, well, I, I was, I, I committed murder. And I was really shocked. And he and he said, uh, "Well, I was in a very racist uh, environment when I was younger, uh, where I lived, and the circle something happened, and I ended up ending someone's life, and I went to jail for it, and I own that, and I take accountability for it. But now I need to change my life. But my point being that it's something about context as well in which people have found themselves, and and I suppose changing the context of their life in order for them to demonstrate the." the better qualities that they have, they, we, all of us, any of us. Absolutely. Just uh, to re-emphasize that point, um, quite a lot of women who go to prison and, and of course, sort of men have, have children. But what you find is that uh, one in, in 10 uh, only of uh, children of women who go to prison um, stay in their homes. They, they move. They're either taken into social care or move with other members of their family or who knows where, whereas hardly any children whose fathers go to prison uh, have to abandon their community or their homes. And those, of course, are all then displaced in a way, and many end up in, in social care. And the percentage well, it's very, very likely that if you end up in social care, you will engage in antisocial behavior and then also eventually end up having a criminal record as well. So circumstances matter hugely. And one of the reasons why there are all these campaigners who say don't send uh, as many people to prison is, is, is for that and also for women uh, who generally commit much uh, sort of smaller crimes, if you like, and who are generally not a threat to society. So a lot of what women in prison does is is uh, have women centers which so support anyone sort of around the sort of criminal justice system, if you like, who either have committed a crime already or or are in danger of or need some rehabilitation or whatever um, in order to prevent the going to prison or at least facilitate uh, their coming out into a better environment when they are eventually released. So, so uh, yes, the environment matters hugely, um, and and the way in which we we look at our entire criminal justice system can, in many ways, sort of uh, accentuate some of these issues. And we need to be aware of that. And I just come back to just from my point of view, the the, the the theme of our discussion with you, our book that we're writing, this podcast series we call it Choose Trust. And I just want to get, if I can, a brief comment from you on. Um, what you've said, which is that most companies won't employ an ex-con, but those that do are actively choosing trust. I mean, they couldn't see a stronger example of choosing trust. They're choosing to trust someone who has done something that has is by definition untrustworthy in their past, so whatever the circumstances. And I just, I just it, Kevin, I'm perhaps I'll hand to you, to you on this, but it just seems to me to be a really powerful example of where consciously choosing to trust someone changes the whole dynamic of the situation and in fact probably creates a situation where that person is more likely to be trustworthy it's a perfect example of it isn't it well i would say that uh, it's not uh, all um ex-offenders uh, i think there are some firms who employ loads of ex-offenders but yeah. draw uh, draw a line to particular types of crime um, and they won't have have that type of person work for them. So so there are some boundaries, if you like. But the, the largest number of people uh, who've been in prison or had anything to do with the criminal justice system um, are not in those categories. So so uh, there is a lot of of openness in terms of of hiring. And yes, it is the trust 
that comes with it. But of course, organizations like yours and, and the ones that I support play a very important intermediary role in improving the environment which this trust can develop. And I think that matters a lot. So I'm conscious of our time. Um, Vicky, your insight has been tremendously helpful at, at both the macro and the micro level. I, I think if we can help more employers just taking up that last conversation to choose trust uh, and to work on, on what the potential for them and the people they employ, then we'll, um, we'll enjoy the economic benefits that you talked about. I think if we can get people to choose trust and to be vulnerable to admit when they've made mistakes, that might help us politically and uh, economically as well. But I want to give you an opportunity to make any final remarks you have about the power of trust in, in your experience. I think we haven't spoken very much about sort of individual companies and the way they treat their employees more generally. And I think that is important. And I think trust in, in, your, in your people and your own people, and also uh, trust that employees can have uh, to the, you know, towards the management, if you like, of an organization matters hugely because that's the way you get, of course, the best results. And one of the worries that that I have is that with, with everything that's going on right now, post COVID and lots of people working from home and uh, the, 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 the HR um, departments are probably not quite equipped to deal with, you know, how to manage these people, how to calculate the productivity, and how to calculate their well-being. And yet, we do have quite a lot of evidence from the likes of CIPD and others, which show very clearly that flexibility improves productivity. We have long longitudinal studies that show that clearly. That if you trust your employees, then they're likely to return the trust to you as well. And I think that matters at, at every level. So uh, what also matters is, in my view, and the experience that I've had so, so far um, with, with business is that any pronouncements from, from the top need to be also um, uh, obeyed further down. Uh, and that includes non-discrimination biases and so on, but also the use of ethics in organizations. So one of the things that good corporation does is it checks whether the pronouncements of the board are, are uh, followed um, all across the organization and, and in, in very far away parts of the world where companies operate, because it can do terrible things to um, reputation of a, of a company and therefore is a result to its financial results if uh, those things come to light which suggests that you know you can't trust their words you can't trust their reports you can't trust their esg pronouncements you uh, there's all this the greenwashing that seems to be taking place and and then uh, you know you end up not trusting any firms not trusting their statements um not trusting their advisors so uh, all that could lead to sort of collapse of, of real belief in what uh, a company does and can do and uh, and with it of course bring financial implications in in its wake so so uh, so trust matters hugely there is no doubt about that um and you've also got to feel that your your leadership will support you uh, you mentioned earlier making mistakes mistakes are made all across leadership can make mistakes individuals can make mistakes uh, it projects may not work properly um, but you need to be open and transparent while you're doing them so that everyone uh, is aware of what's going on. So attributing 
blame to just individuals or one bit of an organization is never good enough in my view and that erodes trust as well in the way in which a company operates and that loses its talent and uh, not good for future prospects. So um, it matters at the micro level hugely. And of course, as we've seen, it matters at the macro level very, very significantly. And you did mention uh, working for governments when we were chatting just before your introduction. And I have done quite a lot of work. I was head of international privatizations at KPMG and amongst lots of other things at some point when Eastern Europe was opening up. And, and I remember we were all sort of invited into to restructure Poland um, and lots of other countries and the first reports we did I remember the clearly we were not trusted being foreign western um, consultants and two of my reports were the, the then finance minister of Poland sort of waved them around in in parliament and said these reports are not acceptable they were about sort of um, getting private investment into two sectors of the economy and uh, you know KPMG will never operate in, in Poland. And of course we did and operated very well, but there were the two bits of work that I have never, there were only bits of work in all my life I wasn't paid for. <laughs> so, so, so you do need that type of trust uh, to function properly commercially, I'm afraid, even at that level. Well, that's, that's, that's perhaps a really great, great place to end. Vicky, look, Again, thank you so much for your insight. Stuart, did you want to add anything? No, just, just to say that you you trust that the government of Poland would pay their bills. My God, that's, <laughs> that might, you know that would happen. I'm sure they do now. Well, yeah. they had their short shop, shock uh, after that. I mean, they, they really changed their economy very substantially. Yeah, oh, it's changed enormously. Thank you once again. I just tried to Kevin. Thank you very much for your time, Vicky. Fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vicky.